Well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, first, I would like to thank once again Pastor T2 and the rest of the session and allowing me to continue to speak about my journey into covenant theology. Uh, I previously shared about the covenant of redemption last month. This morning, I'll be sharing about the covenant of works. And then in July, I will be speaking on the covenant of grace. And so of the three foundational covenants within covenant theology, redemption, works, and grace, the covenant of works was the first that I was introduced to in my own journey. In coming from a non-reformed understanding of scripture, and with my recent departure from Arminianism and dispensationalism, still very fresh in my mind, the covenant of works was the one that I objected to the most. Uh, I wrestled with this what, for what felt like a lifetime. But, but was uh, to speak of a covenant between God and Adam in the garden with terms and conditions, I believed, as I did with the covenant of redemption, not only extended beyond what was written in Scripture, but was absent from Scripture entirely. I believed that this covenant removed all love between God and his creation and made it purely a transactional relationship where God owed Adam eternal life based upon his obedience. So this morning, I want to focus on Similar to what we did with the covenant of redemption, my approach will be the same. Um, but as I was working through this covenant and reading different writers, uh, different covenant theologians such as Opalma Robertson, R.C. Sproul, Gerhardus Voss, and a more modern theologian, Lane Tipton, who is an OPC pastor, this covenant that I had wrestled with and objected to the most in my journey became a beautiful doctrine which I saw scripture declaring of the true and better Adam as our federal covenantal head, who was the substitutionary sacrifice for Adam's and our covenant violation. And so in your outline there, we will go through this. So as with the covenant of redemption, let's establish the historical origin and development of this. As with the covenant of redemption, we saw that it was not used until, the title was not used until 1638, at the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland by a pastor, David Dixon. This in no way we saw should be an argument for um, the validity of the covenant should not be based upon well, when was the title used. We saw that the doctrine itself was taught throughout church history. The covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit from before the foundation of the world to redeem a people to himself, while it did not exist before the 17th century in title, some, has, uh, some have objected. We saw that Theodore Beza in the 16th century, Augustine in the late 4th, early 5th century, we saw that the language, imagery, and doctrine of covenant is present in the writings of these different theologians while the title is absent. The same is true this morning with the covenant of works. Uh, Dr. Chad Van Dixhorn, I recently read through his book, Confessing the Faith. Uh, he gave the Tabor Lectures this past year. He says, if you spot four English ladies sipping tea, eating scones, and savoring the local gossip at four o'clock in the afternoon, you do not need a label to know what is going on. There is a tea party. It, it is possible you may have stumbled on an, intellect, or an international spy ring or the caucus of a drug cartel. But if you are familiar with tea parties, you should be able to spot the difference. With regard to the historical origin of its title, the Covenant of Works is believed to first be seen in the late 16th century 
in the writings of Dudley Fenner and Sacred Theologia in 1585, and William Perkins, Golden Chain in 1591. But while the exact <clears throat> origin of the title is hard to pinpoint, the doctrine is there. It was taught within the church. And so Zacharias Ursinus, who was one of the most influential theologians in writing the Heidelberg Catechism, which we're probably familiar with, in his larger catechism, which was written in 1561, explains the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. In question and answer 10, Ursinus writes, question, what does the divine law teach? Answer, it teaches the kind of covenant God established with man in creation, how man behaved in keeping it, and what God requires of him after establishing the new covenant of grace with him. That is, what kind of man God created and for what purpose, into what state he has fallen, and how he must conduct himself now that he is reconciled to God. Ursinus saw the first covenant that God entered into with Adam at creation was different from the covenant grace that God established with him after Adam's covenant violation so that he may be reconciled to God. The term covenant of works is not used by Ursinus, but the language is. Before Ursinus, Martin Luther, in his commentary on Paul, Paul's letter to the Romans, specifically on chapter 5, which we will look at later, used covenantal terms when distinguishing between all of humanity receiving the imputed unrighteousness of Adam as the federal or covenantal head for humanity and those who are regenerated receiving the imputed righteousness of Christ as the covenantal head of those chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. Luther says in his commentary, As Adam became a cause of death to his descendants, though they did not eat of the forbidden tree, so Christ has become the dispenser of righteousness to those who are of him, though they have not earned any righteousness, for through the cross he has secured righteousness for them. And on Romans 5.17, when Scripture says, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more they will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Luther, again, commenting on this verse, says, Here the apostle says all first, because as all who are begotten of Adam are born through faith in Christ, and secondly, because as there is no carnal begetting except through Adam, so also there is no spiritual begetting except through Christ. And so, of course, when reading the writings of Luther from the 16th century, you're pretty much forced to read the writings of Augustine because Luther drinks deeply from this theologian. <clears throat> in Augustine's work, The City of God, he clearly recognizes that in the garden, in the garden, excuse me, if Adam would live a life of perfect obedience to the commands of God, he would enter into eternal life and perfect fellowship and communion with God. Augustine says, man, on the other hand, God created in such sort that if he remained in subjection to his creator as his rightful Lord and piously kept his commandments, he should pass into the company of the angels and obtain, without the intervention of death, a blessed and endless immortality. So from the 5th century with Augustine to Luther and Ursinus in the 16th century and other theologians during the Reformation, George Walker, Francis Turretin, and Herman Witsius, 
to more modern theologians like Hermann Bavink or Gerhardus Voss, the understanding of covenant between God and Adam in the garden before the fall has been seen throughout church history. As we said with the covenant of works, the term may be absent at times, but the doctrine is not. And the foundational reason that these men embraced and heralded this doctrine is because they believed that Scripture taught it. So there's our historical. Now let's look at some objections, historical objections. Now, while I, in my own journey, may rejoice now in being able to share these different theologians who have seen this doctrine as being taught by Scripture, in my own journey, it was not always the case. As I said, I struggled with this. In coming from a non-reformed understanding of Scripture, I struggled in embracing this understanding of covenant between God and Adam in the garden. Specifically, in coming from dispensationalism and having a literalistic, biblicistic understanding of Scripture, book, chapter, verse for everything. If it doesn't say covenant in the Bible, it's not a covenant. That was my understanding of things. And I wholeheartedly agree with a man who's prominent in dispensationalism, Charles Ryrie. In his book, Dispensationalism, he objects to covenant theology by saying, the theological covenants on which covenant theology is based are not specifically revealed in Scripture. Other covenants, such as the Abrahamic and Davidic, are specifically revealed and in great detail. But the all-embracing covenants of covenant theology are not in the Bible. The whole covenant system is based on a deduction, not the result of an inductive study of Scripture. And so as I previously said with the covenant of redemption of how I believed there was a sense of artificiality, of speculation, and of forcing covenantal terms into Scripture, the same can be said with the covenant of works. But as I continued to study this topic, read Scripture and these different writers that we had talked about, I saw that Ryrie's objection to the covenant theologian's belief being based upon, as he says, a deduction and not the result of an inductive reading of Scripture, I found this to be completely backwards. These different theologians were not reading covenant language into Scripture, but rather letting Scripture speak covenant language to the reader. Ryrie also makes another claim that the covenant theologian forces the New Testament back into the Old Testament. He says, the hermeneutical straitjacket that covenant theology forces on the scriptures results in reading the New Testament back into the Old and in an artificial typological interpretation. Again, the problem I came to see with Ryrie's objection here is that the New Testament itself specifically interprets what we call types and shadows in the Old Testament in light of the New Since the Old Testament and New Testament have the same author, being the Spirit, it is not a straitjacket to bring the new back into the old or to have the new shed light on the old. While there are several typological passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament shows as being fulfilled in Christ, some of those examples would be Christ as the true and better Moses, as mediator, the true and better David as king, the true and better Melchizedek as great high priest. But one typological passage that relates to our topic this morning that we saw Luther commenting on in Romans 5 is where the New Testament declares that Christ is the true and better Adam. 
And so if this were the case in this objection that I shared with Ryrie, that it's reading back into the old and that's forcing it, my objection would be against Scripture itself. And I cannot do that. And so I now see the approach of covenant theology in letting Scripture interpret all of Scripture. Now, while I know that Charles Ryrie is in no way reformed, that is where I came from. That is what I held to in my dispensational beliefs, and so I wanted to address that. And, but as I continued to study different objections, I came across some reformed theologians who had reservations and objection to this covenant of works. These objections were from men like Karl Barth and specifically uh, John Murray. Murray presented the, the first use of the term berith or covenant was not used until Noah. We do not see it before with Adam. Therefore, Murray presents that the relationship between God and Adam in the garden was not one of covenant. He did view that, excuse me, Murray preferred the term Adamic administration when speaking of the pre-fall state of Adam in the garden. He presents all of the qualifications for a covenant relationship, though, when he talks about it. He presents um, obedience or disobedience, blessing, rewards, curses, punishments. If you just study Murray's definition of the Adamic administration and not his objection, you would think that he was talking about a covenant relationship with God and Adam. And so while Murray's objection to the term covenant of works it's one that I saw most often from other Reformed theologians who, objection, uh, who objected to this. Some preferred the covenant of life because life was promised to Adam upon his perfect obedience to the covenant. Others used the term covenant of nature or the covenant of creation. It all depended on what the theologian believed the central focus of the covenant to be and how it operated. But... The consistent recognition from almost all of these Reformed theologians is that there is a covenant. Regardless of its title, there is a covenant relationship between God and Adam in the garden before the fall. And so with having examined the historical origin and development of this covenant and addressing some of these objections, I would now like to focus on properly defining and understanding the operation and purpose of this covenant. And so first, let us establish a foundational definition from our own confession. So the Westminster Confession in chapter 7, article 1 and 2 says, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Two, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. In understanding the covenant of works, we must know that Adam's original state in the garden, did not have any promise of eternal life. 
This is where men like Jehardus Voss, 19th century theologian, and Lane Tipton, an OPC pastor today, were giants in my own journey in helping me understand this reality. Both Tipton and Voss stressed the importance of what they call Adam's natural obedience and Adam's covenantal obedience. Voss uses the term indefinite probation. And what he means by this is as a creature that is made in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, Adam's natural obedience carried with it no promise of eternal life with God in heaven. Tipton says this in his book, Foundations of Covenant Theology. Adam, by nature, was a claimless creature of the dust, so that after he had done all that he could and rendered his heart to God in full, free, and sincere obedience, he would have only done what was required of him. If Adam is to have life, it must come by way of creation. If that life is to be advanced, it must come by way of covenant. If Adam is to advance from his original state of indefinite probation, as Voss puts it, God must, as our confession says, by some voluntary condescension, enter into covenant relationship with Adam. And this is done by way of covenant. So when does the covenant of works begin? This is a question that I asked in beginning to understand this covenant. So if you would, please turn with me to Genesis 2. Genesis 2, and we're going to start in verse 7. Genesis 2, starting in verse 7. And the Lord God formed of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward of Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made every tree, uh, every tree grow that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip down to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In Genesis 2.7, Tipton and Voss would define this as Adam's natural obedience. Adam is a living creature of the dust, made in the image of God. But this state that he was in held no promise of advancement of eternal life or reward to Adam. Genesis 2, 15 through 17 is where covenant language begins as God condescends to Adam and promises life to him based upon his perfect obedience. Both Tipton and Voss define this section as Adam's covenantal obedience. There are conditions, terms, punishments for violation of the command given by God to Adam. As we saw the definition of a covenant with the covenant of redemption, those qualify. Terms, conditions, punishment, violation. 
And so look again at verse 15 through 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to keep, uh, to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so my journey, that realization of this shift in relationship between God and Adam in verses 7 through 9 and 15 through 17, this was huge in my journey. The relationship in verses 7 through 9, natural creator-creature relationship. The relationship in verses 15 through 17, covenantal relationship. Terms, conditions, reward, and punishment. Life and death. This is not a forcing of covenant language into Scripture. This is letting Scripture speak covenant language to the hearer. From Lane Tipton's book, Foundations of Covenant Theology, I've included a longer quote here in your outline, and I, I, I apologize for it being so long, but this specific quote was eye-opening for me in my journey. And an amazing moment in the work of the Spirit in suddenly causing me to see this covenant. Tipton says, Man is created and then placed by God in the garden to work and keep it. After being placed there, he is commanded by God not to eat of the one tree. The probationary tree is ultimately for the good of Adam, since it was given to him to direct his steps to the highest heavens. If Adam walks in the steps that God has laid before him, by keeping his word, he will be led up the mountain of God in Eden to walk with the Lord. From probationary life to consummated life. From worship on earth to worship in heaven. The probation tree tells Adam that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When Adam was brought to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he was made to stare into the very heart of religion itself. True religion is to love and to serve the triune God, not for any reward, but for the sake of his glory alone. And so, I, as I said at the beginning of this lesson, I believed this covenant when I was beginning my journey, I believe this removed all love from the relationship between God and Adam. But how wrong I was in this. God did not owe Adam eternal life. He did not need Adam. As we saw, Adam was a claimless creature of the dust who owed God everything. But God in his great love graciously condescended to Adam and promised him eternal life based upon his love for his creator. I cannot help but think of David in Psalm 8 when he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? This covenant was a voluntary, condescending act of love by God for the creature made in his image. This proper understanding of the covenant of works caused me to see and feel the weight of Adam's violation in the covenant of works um, that I had never realized before. There was a recognition that it was wrong. I knew it was sin, but there was never a weight of sorrow 
over Adam's sin in my understanding. Our confession says, chapter 6, article 2 and 3, By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. Understanding that Adam is a representative man whose actions have determined the eternal destinies of those whom he represents is essential in understanding the first aspect of this covenant. Under Adam as representative, the covenant of works which once promised eternal life in heaven with God now bears only the stench of death and the sting of death to all those who are under his headship. But when I saw the second aspect of the covenant of works, my experience was similar to what happened to Christian in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. He says, John Bunyan writes, his burden loosened from off his shoulders and fell from his back and began to tumble. And so continued to, and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulchre where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. I remember the tears I cried when I realized that Adam is not the only representative man. There are two representative men throughout history, redemptive history, the first Adam and the true and better Adam. Christ is also a representative man whose actions have determined the eternal destinies of those whom he represents. The seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15 is the second and final Adam. They lived a perfect life of obedience to the covenant of works. In the Gospel of Luke, the baptism and genealogy of Jesus Christ testifies to the reader that he is the promised seed who will crush the head of the serpent. Luke also presents that Christ, just as Adam, went through a time of probationary testing. Lane Tipton, once again in his book, Foundations of Covenant Theology, points out that when Jesus is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, it is a recapitulation of the probationary testing of Adam in the garden. But there are a few points of difference. Well, Adam was tested in the garden where life was abundant and filled with substance that would sustain life, Christ is tested in the wilderness. Christ's testing in the wilderness is far from sustaining life, but rather a place where it takes life. Tipton says, Why was there this contrast between the first and second Adam? Because it was necessary for the, the feet of the incarnate Messiah to touch the ground that was cursed on account of the first Adam's sin. Genesis 3.17 Jesus is tempted as the God-man who has come to destroy the works of the devil and to bring his people to where he is going, and that is to paradise above. And during this time of Christ's testing in the wilderness, Luke 4, 1-13, 
we can examine this in comparison with the testing of Adam in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. The devil comes to bring into question what God has commanded, promised, warned, and covenanted to both of these representative men. Both Adam and Christ, as the incarnate God-man, Christ, are made to stare into the heart of religion. Both of them are tested to see if they will serve the triune God, not for any reward, but for his sake and glory alone. Where Adam fell because he desired to live by something other than every mouth or every word that comes from the mouth of God, Christ, as the true and better Adam, declared to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Tipton also discusses why the devil in the last temptation in the wilderness seems to shift his focus to Christ's feet. Tipton presents that Christ has put his heel to Satan's head in the first two temptations. Satan knows that his only hope is to misdirect the foot of the serpent crusher who is walking the path of perfect obedience and worship to the commands laid before him. Again, Tipton, he says, the feet of the Messiah are on Satan's mind because he wants them to be taken off his head. And he wants them instead to stumble in sin, disobedience, and self-promotion. He does not want the feet of the Messiah to ascend to heaven, but to fall to the ground and to be dashed to pieces. Jesus, however, knew that his feet had come for one purpose, to crush the serpent's head. And while there are several other ways in which Christ experienced times of testing, I want us to look now to the opportune time that Luke talks about here when in the wilderness when Satan leaves and says, and he waited for an opportune time. I want to look at this specifically. And so if you would, please turn with me again to Luke 23. Luke 23, and we're going to start in verse 35. Luke 23, 35. Here at the cross, we see a similar threefold temptation, beginning with the scoffing of the leaders, the mocking of the soldiers, and finally the ridicule of one of the criminals beside him. The same temptation, while in the wilderness, is repeated to Christ on the cross. And so let us read this real quick. Uh, Luke 23, starting in verse 35. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. The ridiculing thief on the cross is an interesting one that stood out to me. Because it has the subtle cunningness and... Uh, Sunning cunningness of what Satan did with Adam and Eve in the garden. 
the thief on the cross cries out, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Lane Tipton says this about it very briefly. This criminal cunningly appeals to Jesus' messianic self-understanding and asks him to excuse me, asks him to abuse the conception of salvation and to redefine it as a temporal rescue from imminent death. The same appeal is made in the garden to Adam to redefine and to twist the terms that God has commanded or covenanted to them. But where Adam failed and plunged all of humanity into the state of unrighteousness, Christ obeyed. And through his obedience and faithfulness to the covenant of works, he advances from probationary life to consummated life. Into or from worship on earth to worship in heaven. And his covenant faithfulness and righteousness is imputed to all of those who were chosen from before the foundation of the world in the covenant of redemption. So as our confession says in chapter 8, article 5, the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father, and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of God for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. And so application. In closing, why is this proper understanding of the covenant of works important? Why does it matter? Because it teaches us that our salvation is entirely based upon the person and work of the true and better Adam. As Horatius Bonar penned in his magnificent hymn, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace with him. I praise the God of grace. I trust his truth and might. He calls me his. I call him mine. My God, my joy, my light. The recognition of our salvation being in Christ alone, in both his person and his work, should lead us to rejoice in the benefits that are ours in him. Especially our justification and sanctification. In the true and better Adam, we stand accepted, vindicated, and given the gift of eternal life in perfect communion with our Creator. The believer can rejoice in having a blessed assurance and knowing that Jesus is mine. Confident in what the second Adam has done for us to secure our redemption. Because just as with the covenant of redemption, the covenant of the work of Christ in the covenant of works cannot be undone. Scripture testifies to this in Philippians 1.6, again, by saying that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And also in John 6.39, when Jesus says that all that he has given to me, I should lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. The assurance and anticipation of the believer is to participate in what Christ has uh, 
what Christ has received in his perfect obedience in the covenant of works. That he graciously gives this to his people. And that participation participation is ascending the mountain of God and having perfect fellowship and communion with him for eternity. As 1 Corinthians 15, 42-46 says, when speaking of the resurrection and our glorified bodies, it speaks of the first and the second or the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15 says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So what then is to be our response in understanding this covenant? I'll borrow one more quote from Lane Tipton. Our response can only be to join our voices with the voices of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and to confess Jesus Christ as the second and last Adam who by his death and resurrection has once for all opened the gates of paradise for us. What he has opened, no one can close. Therefore, abide in him. Rise up into that paradise by faith and worship the triune God today in the power of the Spirit. As you ascend the heights of Mount Zion in union with Christ, worship and adore the living and self-contained triune God forever. Any questions? Look at that, you're out of time. Okay, let us pray. Our almighty God of covenant, we thank you that you graciously chose to condescend to us and lovingly offer a claimless creature of the dust, a pathway to eternal fellowship with you. We know that you were not required to give us this gift And while we know that the first Adam failed, we thank you for the second Adam that did not, who obeyed perfectly your commands and the covenant that you made with him. So we rejoice in the work of Christ. We joyfully look forward to the day when Christ returns and together with the saints throughout the ages whose redemption has been purchased through the blood of Christ, we may ascend the mountain of God to be with you. And now I ask that you would bless the rest of your Lord's Day, bless the preaching of your word as your people gather together to worship our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, through the power of your Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.